Thank you so much. Let's keep our faith simple and our confidence growing. Amen? And if you remember the church family, this afternoon they have a memorial for an uncle, Uncle David Raitt. I'll be attending there with my family. And it's hard to see your loved ones grow infirm and go to their rest. So let's be praying for them. And just before we pray as well, be sure and think about somebody who served our country. It's Memorial Day weekend. Let's be sure to pass on our gratitude. It'll be a good time uh, to go see somebody's uh, grave of someone who lived their life and served well. Let's pray. Lord, we're in your home on this beautiful Sabbath morning. We're asking, Lord, that it would be more beautiful through the word. So I'm praying now for hearts that are humble. I'm praying, Lord, for my own heart to be humble before you. Please prompt and use. And may we worship you in submission to the spirit and the precepts of this word. We look to you now, Lord, and thank you for your gentleness and patience with us. May we be this way with each other and with the generation we're raising to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thought it might be interesting to start our message out this morning to think about how parenting has changed over the years. I'm in the midst of a series called Saving Our Children. And before I do that, I want to note, I, I read something I thought was quite good on the Adventist News Network, because the essence of today's message is you discern truth from error in parenting through inspiration. And while we value science, we sieve out what is bad and hang on to what is good based on the inspired Word of God. Now, there was an interview that included James Standish in the Adventist News Network, and he said, according to Standish, religion is empty and delusional without a firm faith in the creator of life. Although we discover evidence of God's design and creative power using the methods of science, listen to this next phrase, scientific findings with their changeable interpretations should not form the foundation of our faith in the Creator. Science may sometimes provide reassurance, at other times raise questions, but ultimately our faith should be based on the unchanging Word of God. What do you say? So having said that, let's look at how parenting has changed over the last 50 years. Won't this be interesting? Sometimes sad. So I found a few websites that address this. And I don't know how good their science is, but many of their numbers are statistically uh, establishable. I found one that said there were 50 ways that parenting had changed in the last 50 years. Let's go quick. More households are now childless, okay? More parents are unmarried but living together. I do want to say there, friends, there's no experimenting with marriage. Love is built on a commitment. You go through good and bad. Commitment is what gets you through the bad and keeps you there for the good. Amen? Number three, more kids are being raised by single parents. Well, I'll tell you what, it's not ideal, and I don't want anybody to think of it as a parachute. For those of you that are doing it, more power to you. Hang in there. You need your church family and your regular family a whole lot more, but it's not how God set it up. And I'm not going to say much about it, but there is a... Uh, there is a law, I think it might be in Leviticus, that no illegitimate child is to be allowed into the sanctuary for 10 generations. I've asked experts to explain that to me. None of them can, so I'm going to tell you what I think it means. And that is God so values the privilege of a child having a mom and a dad 
that it lays down this law. So let's make sure we cooperate and lay a strong foundation for marriage. Oh, here's one. Fifty years ago, expectant mothers were not discouraged from smoking. And uh, I was one of those babies born to a smoking mother. I was a small baby, even though I grew into a larger man. Uh, number five, new parents have video monitors to watch their kids. Yep, that wasn't for me. At-home pregnancy tests are widely available. Parents can now tell the sex of their baby prior to birth, and consequently, something that I hope I'm never invited to, gender reveals have become a major trend. Um, I'm all for babies and new birth. I just don't want to be at baby showers and especially gender reveals. Um, number 10, children, this one was interesting. Children's clothing has become more gender specific. Hmm, this is a real conundrum here because in the 1970s, there was a unisex clothing trend. Of course, you didn't know whether your baby was a boy or a girl back then when they were born. Well, before they were born, I should say. All right, people are choosing less popular names for their children. Now, I don't want to offend anybody, so if you have one of these names, there's no personal angst in what I'm about to say. But if your name is Northwest or Blue Ivy, uh, you fit the trend, okay? Same-sex adoption is significantly more common today. More parents are breastfeeding, which is probably good, considering the challenge with infant formula. Parents are more disposed to disposable diapers. I would like you to know that our firstborn used, we used cloth diapers, and uh, my wife was very glad for the disposables. All right. Here's an interesting one, number 22, today's baby strollers. Okay, I'm going to make you think about this. What's different between baby strollers from 50 years ago and today? The way the baby faces. 50 years ago, the baby faced forward. Now, the baby faces towards the parent. And the other thing about baby uh, strollers is that now they have become a status symbol. And you can buy the Cybex by the Jeremy Scott Travel System for $3,100 and make a statement that you're a better parent than all the rest, or at least richer. Number 25, kids typically sit in the back seat today and car seats are mandatory. And moms are older. How old was a mom back in 1969 or 70? First mothers, first born. The mama was 21.4 years of age. In 2016, mamas were 28 years old. Less children. In 1969, it was 3.19 kids per family unit. And in 2018, that was down to 2.53. Oh, here's a big one, part of today's sermon. Uh, it used to be that people asked their parents for family advice, parenting advice especially. Now, who do they ask? Not Dr. Spock, although we're going to talk about him, but they asked the king of advice, King Internet. Uh, number 38, parents are giving their young children more screen time. Well, we didn't need a survey to tell us that. We can look around and see, and it's probably not good. And the parents themselves are facing more digital distractions. Interestingly enough, parents, they say, work more, but are more involved with their kids. That might be true, but it might be... a contradiction of statistics as well, but they're also concerned about being too involved. And number 48 I thought was very interesting, probably would have saved me some gray hair. Fewer parents are teaching their kids to drive, and more parents are being cared for by their adult children. And then there was one more I got off another list, which was where people are getting their advice 
And that, as I mentioned already, is the internet. Now, I want you to remember what Martin Luther said. He said, a simple layman armed with the Word of God is mightier than the mightiest pope without it. Now, I want you to stop and think about that. I want you to think about Tyndale and Wycliffe and all these people who died so that you can have a Bible in your hands. I want you to think about the principles and the precepts that are recorded in the Word of God. Now, when you don't take time to look at them, read them, and pray over them, you're missing out on the consummate single-source gathering spot of divine wisdom. Now, if you look at the quote behind me, it says, speaking of the remnant, they keep the commandments of God and they have the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 19.10 will tell us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of the prophets or the spirit of prophecy. I have two books in my hands. There are many others. No one, including those who have no children or are long past raising children, should have failed to have read both of them. One is the Adventist home, because whether you're married or married with kids or single, you still have a home. The other thing is that you're part of a larger church family, and the principles that this larger church family works on work out of the constructs of the home. The second is the book Education. Why Education? Because I believe education is a goal that all of us are involved in. So whether you're homeschooling or whether you're putting the kids in a Seventh-day Adventist school, both of those are Seventh-day Adventist Christian education, God wants us to be well-informed. Ignorance is a terrible thing. Now, we're living in a dark age. Just Thursday, the owners of Barbie, which used to be Mattel, kids' company, introduced a transgender Barbie, all right? This is not made up. It couldn't have come in a better time for a series I'm doing called Saving Our Children. But on Thursday, they introduced a transgender Barbie based on a movie star named Laverne Cox, I believe is the name. Uh, this is an all-out war to shape the minds of your children and redefine what love is. Now, the Bible says God is love, okay? God is the author of this book. If God is love and God is the author of this book, then what's in this book is a description of how to live out that love. Without that definition, it's up to the new definition, which is based on feelings. The postmodern generation has jettisoned absolute truth, except the thing, the one absolute truth they've hung on to is thou shall not judge, which means don't bother me while I'm experiencing my own liberty and license. Don't rain on my parade. But I want you to understand there's a war on for your kids. Malachi chapter 4 tells us that at the very end, God's going to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. That's because the children are being turned away from the fathers and the mothers, and God is going to pour out a special measure of His Spirit to reach those kids. Now, the sad thing is, if you train up a child the wrong way, retraining them might not work. And that's why I'm taking the time to be a part of this sermon series. Now, when it comes to interpreting how you make good decisions, I want to assure you that while the Bible holds the absolute cornerstone essence, the prophetic gift of the spirit of prophecy relating to the ministry of Ellen White is light for the darkness. Now, last night I took my little uh, Australian shepherd outside with me. She heard a noise that scared her. It was the sound of deer snorting in the woods near our house. Now, if you've never heard this noise before, it could startle you. It makes me think of that time I was in Rocky Arbor State Park with my father. And I'll save that story for a little farther in the sermon, but I want to tell you this. There is wonderful strength in knowing right from wrong, and you want a bright light when you're in a dark night. 
And so while I value the light on my cell phone, I sure prefer that orange and black handled rechargeable light that gives us thousands of lumens when I'm in the dark because while I'm not typically a person that's living out of my fears, I still am not in love with darkness. And when I walk through dark nights, especially if I think there's human beings around, I'm not terribly afraid of the rest of creation, but especially if I think there's human beings around, I want to be able to see. And the brighter the light, the better. So, woe be unto us if we have the opportunity to have a lighter candle burning in our lives, but we ignore it. And we're very hard on those who rejected the messages of Jeremiah and Isaiah. But I suggest to you today, whether it's by neglect, indifference, too busy, or whatever it might be, we are rejecting the wisdom we need to get our kids through this wilderness to the Canaan land. And I'm advising you, take the time. Now, something I should say probably more than once in a sermon is this. If you listen and you find out you've been going the wrong way, fine. May God give you grace. If you study the Sabbath school lesson today, you can see he's a God of grace when families are out of control. So you've got Jacob lying with the encouragement of his mother. You've got a family system where it appears a lot of dishonesty has been going on. But as soon as Jacob has to flee from home, God shows up and he says, I'm still with you. But moving the needle back to where it should be should be a work of patience and intelligence. But not attempting to reset course is foolhardy and self-destructive. So I'm appealing to you today. We are living in an age where we need reform. I know that the lifted Christ is the power to motivate the reform. But without reform, the lifted Christ is not enough to keep us from self-destruction. We cooperate to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this, it's because there's no light in them. So we have our own modern-day secular prophets. They are pontificating with data and surveys and science. That science, according to Standish, can be interpreted. I'm here to tell you today, it absolutely must be. So let's have just a little more fun before we go to the Word. Those of you that are my age, remember that there was a guru back in the 50s. He wrote a book that actually sold 50 million copies. It was the Common Sense Guide to Child Rearing. Now the name may be slightly different than that. He himself was the first of six. His father was a successful attorney for a railroad. He was raised in a fairly strict home, and when he got old enough, six foot four, he went off to college. He was a strong, powerful built man. They noticed and they wanted him on the rowing team at Yale. In 1924 in Paris, they won a gold medal for the rowing team. He came out of there and went to medical school, later went on and studied psychoanalysis under the you could say, not direct, but ongoing uh, presence of Sigmund Freud. And then he went on to write multiple books. His name was Dr. Spock, not to be accused, Benjamin Spock, not to be accused with the man who had pointed ears and was on the television show, uh, which so many have watched, maybe not to their good. But the truth of the matter is, this man became the new guru he actually ran for president in 1972 under the People's Party and got 75,000 votes. Lots of people don't know this. When I end the sermon today, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about his family because I believe character and truth are closely tied to each other, especially in issues of personal growth and the discipleship of our kids. But this morning, I want to examine several teachings from the Word of God that set the bar for principle and precept about how to interpret modern-day science. So, let me just say this. I'm not against science, 
but especially in the social and psychological sciences, the testing factor, the touchstone, is the Word of God, especially in some sciences where we are using whole generations to experiment with. You cannot experiment with a generation without putting a society in danger. And I'd like to suggest to you today that we're very close to that. I talked with a professor this week, not a member of this church, but a member of this faith. He said, when I brought up the concept of Roe versus Wade in my classroom recently, the kids, the the students were incensed. The idea that their rights would be rescinded. This was a Seventh-day Adventist school. He said to me, this is the me generation. And he was doing his part to remind people that life is sacred and the developing life has rights as well. There is a need, friends. There is a call. It is time for us to reset the boundaries because the ancient landmarks have been moved. And I'm here to suggest to you today that very slowly the frog in the kettle has become more lethargic when it should be saying, I'm out of this pot and I'm getting into a different one. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning, open them to the book of Exodus. We're going to start at one of the most fundamental places to make sure we're rightly calibrated in how we're relating to each other. Exodus chapter 20, looking at verse 12. Now, when I lived in Indiana, I pastored the church where the Indiana Academy students attended for almost 20 years. And one of my friends drove a big vehicle, and they had a license plate that I chafed at almost every time I saw it. The license plate had a message that probably meant well, but in the confluence, in the coming together of of a very consumer culture and a very me-centered culture, it was exactly the wrong message, and it remains the wrong message. Because no child is to think of themselves as the center of anybody's universe, especially their families. I want to talk to the me-centered or the child-centered parenting that's going on today in society. Number one, our children are not that fragile. They can afford to be loved even in some old-fashioned ways. As a matter of fact, the ones that are raised in two-parent homes where they love God and love each other are coming out better than the rest. And by the way, if you send your kids to a non-Adventist university, you better beware because they look like especially grand targets for people to attach themselves to because our kids are intelligent, they're clean, they're modest, they're respectful. They're all the things that add up to the idea of bright, beautiful, and a good future. Yes, if ever before there was a need for our universities, it's now. But whether it's on the university campus or in your home or in this church, we are operating on a foundation that can't be shaken. The storms of life will come to the kids. They'll come to you as parents. But we need to remember this, building on the Word of God, the the floods can range, but our foundations are firm. Beginning with Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. It doesn't say honor little Ronnie or honor little Chrissy or Sharon. Looking out, my brother's not here this morning. We called him Marky when he was a boy. So little Marky, those are the four kids that were in our family. I'm the oldest of the four. There's six years between me and him. You know, I got punished by my mother a lot, but I always sensed that I deserved the punishment. My mother succeeded marvelous here. And perhaps society was doing a little more helping back then. I was not an entitled child. 
As a matter of fact, I understood that the adults in my life were entitled to honor. And my mother, even though we didn't have family worship hardly ever, and she never went to church, my mother got a lot of the bedrocks together and she built a life on them, partially because she did honor her own mother and father enough to say, oh, in spite of some mistakes that my mother and father made, they got a lot of it pretty good. There is a lot of collective wisdom in six millennia of child rearing, things that are to be passed down, learned in the school of life, not off the internet and not from a book, unless that book is spelled B-I-B-L-E. And what I'm suggesting to you this morning is this, is that our society is a retrograde society right now where people do strange things, and it's a good time to be praying for that school in Texas and all those parents. I mean, the number just grows every time I listen to the news. But you know, when I was a boy, there weren't any 18-year-olds or 21-year-olds walking into schools killing little innocent children. I was raised in an age where you respect authority, not question it. And while I understand that authority will blur outside its bounds at times, a world with some authority is better than a world with very little. And I want us to understand that life is always a balance, that everything I say here today, you're going to have to go out and study it for yourself and consider how to balance it. But one thing is clear, there is no moral equivalent in the New Testament or the Old that says, honor your children. You are to protect them. You are to love them. You are to grow them. You are to discipline them. You are to nurture them. You are to hug them. You are to kiss them. And sometimes you are to give them corporal punishment too. That's what the Bible says. But the Bible says to honor your father and your mother. It never goes away. It never ends. It's not exactly the way your father and mother always say, especially as they get to the place where they actually need the care of the children. It's a negotiated dynamic of mutual compatibility at times. I had one of you come up to me after the sermon not too long ago and ask me a question about how to relate to parents that are needing care now but they are still to be honored. And our children are to be taught to honor their parents. And child-centered parenting is probably the worst thing that could happen to your kids. When we think about the prodigal father, he understood some very key things. He understood, number one, children are a heritage from the Lord. That's Psalm 127. Their gift, their stewardship, the chief stewardship of your life. You have an obligation to the one who gives them to you. That's God. It's not what the kids want, it's what the kids need, which is to be nurtured and loved and disciplined, to be grown to successful adulthood so they're not a burden on society. That prodigal father raised those two boys the same way, and neither one of them seemed to catch on very quickly because one stayed home and didn't get it, and one went away and didn't get it, but he did get his inheritance ahead of time and left his dad bleeding emotionally and relationally, basically saying, it's okay, dad, if I never see you again. He had no cell phone in his pocket where his father could have the tracking app. And the only word he got about his son came from people who passed happenstantially and could connect the dots. But the father's message to the son remained the same. Son, God is first in my heart and in this home. And if the rules are chafing you, as the desire of ages suggested they were, then I understand you may not want to always be here with me. But this is how it will be. You're welcome here as long as you can cooperate. But when that day comes that you can't, out of respect for you and out of respect for me, it'll be better for you to have to achieve and establish on your own. If you don't start from the very beginning with your kids with this sense of self-respect for yourself, for God, and for them, you're on disadvantaged ground. God didn't give you kids. He lent you kids if he lent them to you. And if you have no children, you're a part of this larger church family, 
exercise the opportunity to weave yourself into the fabric of their lives. But God lent those children, and He doesn't want the parents getting in the way of giving them what He's already paid to give them, which is an inheritance that's bigger than the one mom and dad on planet Earth can give them. They're an inheritance, they're a gift, and they are to grow up to where they can give the gift away to the next generation. The prodigal son models that God comes first. Child-centered parenting and consumerism are two deadly convergences. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. It's been a long time since people have looked at this, and some will be stunned to find out it's actually in the Bible. But it's there, and I want the young and the old to see it, some as a reminder and some as a foundation to begin on, never having read it before. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. You know, there's a lot of idioms for monkeys. You know, you've got the monkey in the middle, they've got the monkey on your back, you've got don't make a monkey out of me. Well, maybe that's the one that this sermon can be connected to because that's what the devil wants to do with you. I also have a friend, he has a, he'll, he'll make a statement every once in a while. When he deals with large groups or he's dealing with issues of people, and by the way, I see some of our teachers in this audience today, you know, if you're listening online, this is not an issue here in Village. But if you're listening online and you're running a VBS and your teachers don't want to help, there's a reason. I'm going to explain it to you right now. Teachers know that in order to teach, they have to have order. So when they get involved with other youth programming and there's no order, it's like absolutely contradictory to their very person. My friend has a statement, and this is what he says. When he sees a big group of people and no direction, no order, he says the monkeys are running the zoo. I want you to think about this for a few minutes. When that happens, chaos is underway and catastrophe will be the result. Permissive parenting and over-controlling parenting, these are the two things the spirit of prophecy says will lead to rebellion. But I'll tell you what, it might be well for us to understand how to have environments that have high control and high support. That's how well-functioning businesses and home institutions work. We're going to look at something here that I don't think we've looked at enough. It says in 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. The Bible says that a sluggard puts his hand into the dish and doesn't even remove it. The Bible says that the sluggard says there's a lion in the streets, but the righteous go out to meet it. The Bible is so against laziness, and Pastor Paul would work to where nobody could ever say he took on the ministry to get rich or have an easy life. He'll work two jobs to evangelize the world. But what kind of problem was going on in Thessalonica to where he'll have to say, huh, you're forgetting what I told you. What I said then is what I say now. If you're too lazy to work, you're not going to eat off the dole of the church. Did you know this was in the Bible? Do you know how much God abhors laziness as a sin of selfishness? And do you know how he abhors it in our children? And do you know how hard it is to teach a child to work? I thought there might be an amen there. (laughs) Woe be to those academy people who receive our children and none of them have ever been taught what a toilet bowl cleaner looks like or how to plug in a vacuum or how to wash a dish. This is a cardinal sin. And we have people that either will be working in the academy soon or have. I actually received a letter from someone that I appreciate very much. 
And they were suggesting that on Friday, parents don't really have their kids helping them do work. It was wonderful. I was sitting at a school board meeting not long ago listening to one of the parents, and they were describing how they do their work on Friday, how they write out a list, and the kids really like it. They just knock that stuff out. Teaching your children to be lazy by being too busy or being too indifferent or being too distracted is a blight not only on their future, but it's a blight on society, it's a blight on the church, it's a blight on the future of the mission. The very first page of the book, Education, says the goal is to teach our kids for a life of service here and the greater joy of the greater service in the world to come. I get the idea that throughout all of eternity, God's a worker. God's a worker. So much so to where Jesus would say when they were giving him a hard time, he would say, don't you know that on Sabbath when you're resting, your father isn't? And today, when we go home and enjoy our lunch, the sun's still shining, the plants are still growing, the breeze is still blowing, all because God sits on the throne. And not teaching our kids to work is a great offense to God. I was talking with a business owner just this last week. He was talking about employee issues. Somebody had the gall to suggest that somehow immigrants were taking the jobs from the rest of the Americans. He turned to the person and he said, do you know how hard it is to get a white kid to work? Don't talk to me about it, he said, something like that. The new measure of achievement is if your workers show up four days out of five and within a half hour or so of being on time. And you think we can be a great nation like that? I don't think so. How about a great church? Now, mind you, the reports I get from so many of our young people and the people that supervise them is what great workers they are. And nothing could please me more than when they come back from one of their unique trips, which our school believes in taking these trips where they bond with the parents, with the kids. They have outdoor learning. It's in a real laboratory, not not inside an industrial brick-and-mortar complex, and these kids actually step up and do more than they're asked to do. We're succeeding with the parents. The parents are succeeding, and we're succeeding with you in teaching our kids the joy of service. We're supposed to work for love, by the way, not for a paycheck. So for all of you that have jobs you don't like, try to find a way to do them in such a way that it's actually ministry to somebody, not a galling yoke for a few dollars an hour. And our kids should be taught to do their work well, so they feel proud about it when they're done, not they endured it and they're not proud of it. What a combination for making sure they stay lazy. But I'll tell you what, it takes a lot of work to have a good marriage. Be a good time for an amen. amen. It, takes a, it takes a lot of work to succeed in life and school and run a business and all these other things. And so maybe learning to work is one of those things that's super duper important and maybe we ought to fall back in love with it. And by the way, you know, Two generations ago, many people grew up on the farm. Those very same people didn't stay on the farm due to mechanization and the efficiency of farms. They brought their work ethic into the American society. You know, Nucor Steel operating in Indiana when they wanted to build a new plant. Jim Collins tells us in his book, Good to Great, they didn't try to hire steel workers. 
They hired farmers because farmers had a work ethic and it was easier to teach steel making than it was to teach how to work. I want you to think about this. Teaching your kids to work. Teach them to go out in the garden. Put them out there in the dirt. They won't like it for parts of it. Planting's fun and harvesting's fun. Everything else in between is work. But it's how you get the harvest. And pulling those weeds when they're little and not waiting until they're big and making sure the ground's a little bit moist, they're all lessons about how God weeds the garden of our heart. All right, I can't stay here any longer. I'll tell you what I did when I was a boy, though. Not only did my mom make me redo the job if I did it poorly, for instance, moving the ottoman, vacuuming behind the door, she'd come look. And she said, if you do it wrong, you're going to do the whole thing over. Not just the spot, the whole thing. I'm thankful to my mother for teaching me to work. When I was a teenager, I did the detasseling. I put up these big bumpers where the semi-trucks back up to buildings. I was a grunt on a roofing crew. I delivered newspapers. I was all kinds of things, but let's move on. Take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. This is in the Bible too. It's been a long time since we've looked at it, but it might be time to revisit it. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. The Bible tells us that whoever spares the rod hates their children. That's some strong verbiage, almost like if you don't work, you don't eat. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. He withholds the rod, hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Hating and loving. I'm not sure on the emotional spectrum you're going to get two words that are farther apart or more emotionally intense. Now, I'm not here to suggest today that the great solution to behavior modification is moving from a, which is talking with someone, to Z, which is corporal punishment. But I am here to suggest to you today that the Bible didn't just make this up. It's not just, it's not just cultural. That God himself is a disciplinarian who loves way more than he disciplines, but disciplines because he loves. That's the message in the churches in the book of Revelation. Those whom I love, I discipline. It was the story in the Garden of Eden. If you studied your Sabbath school lesson this week, you see that Jacob, the supplanter, has to face, which is another biblical law of reaping and sowing, he has to face lying and deceit over and over again. Does it mean God doesn't love him? Or does it mean God knows how deep the taproot of his deception is? And he's going to have an experience that actually makes him hate lying. There are some things for which the body is especially designed, and some actions for which immediate and swift retribution should be the result. And children are made to bear up underneath some of these moments, especially if they're done rightly. Spirit of prophecy will tell us to make sure that our own spirit is right before any of this is involved. And again, I'm not suggesting it's the immediate go-to, but I am suggesting this. The Bible's not suggesting that it's an alternative. It's telling us that it's part of the journey. If you were abused as a child, I can understand your hesitancy. But please don't abuse society by failing to be the ones who love the children the most and are the best ones to teach the children that some things lead to very detrimental actions. The parents are the best ones to do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let's turn there. This is in the Bible. You need to know it. These are laws. And you can't deviate them without great expense to yourself and the ones you love. Now, I've always had one goal, and my one goal was to raise my children to actually be able to make it to heaven, to know how to have healthy, functional lives, and to live within the guidelines of the principles and the precepts of the Word of God. 
This is a law. It's being violated in society, and it's having its effect. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, I'm looking out and I see somebody here who sat in a simulator hours after hours, flying 747s and 777s. When she's sitting in that simulator, she's being prepared to fly that big airplane. It's a digital experience. It's not real. It's just made to be real, as close as it can get. When our armed servicemen are being trained and they're going through simulations, when they're dealing with the digital world, we call it training. Why is it that when we let our kids sit in front of these devices, we call it entertainment. By beholding, you change. So you better decide carefully what you behold because you're being remade into the image of what you beheld, and you may not even know it. You know, the brain is an amazing thing. It's working when you don't know it's working. I've told you the story of me learning to water ski before. You know, I, uh, I, I drank half the lake, the people at Little Grassy Lake gave me multiple times, and I thought they were cruel and inhumane for giving me more than one shot at it. And finally, I wove the white flag and said, I'm done. I got into the boat, never bothered with water skiing ever again. I thought, who in the world would ever want to do this? But a few summers later, my younger sister learned ahead of me, and it's like, there ain't no way she's going to learn and me not learn. So I went out there, drank a few gallons of water, eventually got the idea of how to keep these two pieces of wood sort of close together and me on top and the water on bottom. Later on, I decided I'm going to do it on one. I'd already gotten the drinking part of the lake down, so I, I got over that. I'd hang there in the water, moving back and forth, stick my head down. I'd yell, hit it. They'd take off. If the boat was too weak, it'd take you forever to get up on the water. But I can remember I finally got up. There I was, you know, those people who slalom ski, you know, they like to make those big rooster crow tails. And I was out there leaning one way, but I didn't know how to do it. So I, I'd lean real hard against the boat, but what I didn't want to do was let a little slack in the line and kind of lean back and around like this, because I'd never done it before. A little while later, I'd cross the wake, and I'd be in the same position. I could make that water fly real big if I just leaned against the wake. But the idea of, of kind of drawing it in, letting up, and kind of leaning back in like this, I wasn't going to do it. And when I got all done and I got in the boat, Wayne Mosier, who was the boat driver, talked to me about it. Well, you know, somehow my brain was working on all of that. And the next day when I went out, you would have thought I'd had 10 skiing lessons. My brain was putting things together when I was out of the water based on data from the last time I was in. And when you're watching things, you don't know what's going on, but long after you've watched them, your brain is still dealing with that data. And it's weaving a fabric that's shaping what your abilities are. And the devil wants to make sure you only see the world through his glasses. It's superbly important 
that you understand it's not a preference. It's not a theory. It's not a postulation. You are being changed. And so are your kids. But the difference between you and your kids is that your kids are having a harder time because the corpus, the body, the substance of who they are is a lot more vacated than you. You've got a lot more in your cup. But what they're watching is filling up important parts of the cup and shaping large parts of who they are. Yeah, you need to think twice about at what age you put a cell phone in their hands. And you need to be very comfortable with the fact that you don't care what any other parents are doing. What you care about is that you get to stand under the tree of life with your kids. And they get to decide whether or not Somehow they get big enough where they can say, I'm either going to honor my father and my mother or I'm not. And hopefully in the planet Earth it adds up to that. But if it doesn't and you fall asleep and they only wake up after you're resting in the grave, it's okay. The prodigal's father was quite good with the idea that if it meant the only way to get his son back was to let him go, then he'd let him go. But I'm here to tell you today, by beholding, you are changed. And so all those commercials you don't want to see, they're advertising things you don't want to buy, those few seconds there in front of you, they know they're in front of you for that length of time. And they got a hook, and they're trying to put it in your brain. And they want to reel you in, and they want to bind you down, because their inspiration is not from above. It's not just a preference. Leviticus 19.32, I'm going to move on. You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged. You shall revere your God, for I am the Lord. Pride of the opinion goes with being young. You add to that a big paycheck, and pretty soon they don't need mom and dad anymore. I want you to think about this. One of you said to me, speaking of one of your kids, that they were going to get a paycheck that no kid should ever get. We produce some pretty smart kids. We produce some hardworking kids. One of the contractors, I see one of our contractors sitting here today. This ought to be an affirmation to all of you at the Village Church, and maybe some that are watching from other places, but a contractor in this community got a hold of one of our contractors and said, do you have any Seventh-day Adventists you, that I could hire? He says, they don't cuss, they don't swear, and they work hard. Can you say amen? amen? And they do a lot more than that, all right? I'm here to tell you today, we need a counterculture to counter the culture we're in. And our children have to be weaponized to fight back against the culture, knowing how sick it is. And we can't just go along with American culture anymore because it's rotten to the core. And we don't need a transgender Barbie. And we don't need them telling that it's only about caring for the ones that are unique. No, it's a war to change the minds of our children and the value system of Christianity. And we can love transgender and we can love everybody else, whether it's cisgender and adulterer or whether it's something else we can love them all the way God says to love them we can hate the sin and love the sinner but we are not to have our version of love rewritten by the world they don't know very much about it thank you no thank you it's time for us to realize that the older people in our midst may be the last lifeline that can be thrown to this generation the pillars are falling they're getting older we need to be raising up Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's. It's a time for a hero generation, and it's going to require something different than we've been doing because it wasn't any big deal for Adventism to just kind of go along with this Christian nation, but it's not a Christian nation anymore, especially in the entertainment world. Ignorance. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. 
Because you've rejected me, Hosea 4.6, I will also reject you from being priests for me. I want to tell you something. A hundred years ago, Seventh-day Adventists were vegetarians. Lots of them. Why? Because the science said so. A hundred years ago, Seventh-day Adventists weren't smoking. Why? Because the science said so. Not hardly. A hundred years ago, Seventh-day Adventists were against drinking, whether it was wine or liquor or spirits. All of the wine studies have been all over the board. Wine's good for you. Lately, I think the latest science is wine's not good for you. Listen, friends, drink the pure fruit of the vine, unadulterated by spoiling. We as Seventh-day Adventists have a rich heritage of being willing to be different if we know we're standing on the Word of God. So, Dr. Spock said, put your babies on their face. Modern-day science says, no, put them on their back. When we don't have a word from God, you can let science give you its best guess. But in the meantime, we're standing on the rock and we're building on the Lord Jesus Christ who authored this word, whose father was his own director of activity. It's important. In our grandparents' generation, they brought their kids to the prayer meeting. They brought their kids to the evangelistic meeting. It was church first, not soccer, not piano, not homework, not sleep schedules, and not dance lessons. Of course, this includes Christian education or homeschooling. They taught their kids to return an honest tithe, and working for the church was noble and a high calling, even if you didn't make as much money. But back then, the disparities weren't as great. Isaiah 54, 13 says, All thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. I want you to think about this. In the same way that conservative couples enjoy the greatest marital pleasure, including the private sides of life, so children coming from traditional Judeo-Christian value homes enjoy the greatest peace and purpose and priority system. Parents constantly on their phone are distracted. It's important for us to realize what matters most. Galatians 6, 7, another law. I'm not going to look it up for time's sake. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. It's absolutely important that our parents see the teachers as partners in raising these kids, not guilty until proven innocent. And neither are the policemen to be guilty until proven innocent, or the pastors, or some other older person in the church. As I come to the end, I want to remind you of what Jesus was doing in the last hours of his life. Now to do this, I want you to think about your sickest moment, when you felt the worst, because that won't even get close to how Jesus felt. At your sickest moment, you're still many steps away from the agony of Christ who felt the separation of his father. He couldn't hardly breathe. He had splinters in his back. He had bugs on his open wounds. The sun was beating down on him. He was thirsty. But the Bible tells us that at his most vulnerable moment while he's being scorned and mocked, he looks down at the disciple John and he says, Behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. I want you to know that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was doing the same thing he had done every day of his human life. He was showing submission to his Father in heaven 
And in those days before his ministry, he was showing submission, obedience, and honor to his parents on earth. God's plan for happiness includes marriages and families across generations, and it's to be great peace and great joy. But if you choose to go another way because the data says so, then you will reap what you sow. And if you've done your very best and your kids aren't doing what you said, then keep praying Malachi chapter 4 that God will turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers. And long after you're in the grave, there'll be some other spiritual father or mother that those children will link with. But friends, we are living in an age where we need to understand that even Jesus as an adult was doing his father's will. He wasn't anti-authoritarian like our culture has become. The Bible was not kicked to the curb. Honoring his father and his mother, both earthly and heavenly, was a priority. Now let's come back to Dr. Spock. I'm going to tell you this. The man's dead. He was a public man that made millions off people like you and me. He had two boys, John and Michael. After 48 years of being married to his wife, Jane Cheney, he divorced her for a much younger man, woman. The two boys were so incensed, they were in their 60s and their 50s, that they changed their name from Spock and took on their mother's maiden name. The Bible says fresh water doesn't flow out of a brackish spring. We are living in an age where you need to know beyond the shadow of the doubt, the devil knows that he has but very little time. And he's going about looking as a roaring lion for somebody to devour. Now, how many of you have ever been to Financial Peace University? Okay. You know, this is the financial university where they teach you to live out of debt. I went to it once. We held it in our church as well. But I have a favorite part of that, that uh, experience. I'm not a fan of watching National Geographic, how the, how the lions catch the, the zebras and everything else. I'm not a fan of that. I know it happens. I don't like to watch it. I am here to tell you the devil's not going about as a roaring lion, just looking for somebody to devour. But he, like the lion and the cheetah know, the easiest ones to devour are the young. In Financial Peace University, What's his name? Dave Ramsey. In Financial Peace University, Dave Ramsey has a clip. I love to think about it, even as I'm standing here before him. Here is said cheetah. Here is said impala. Little impala. Lunch for cheetah. The race is on. Can you see that cheetah stretching out? I mean, they can run. Life depends on it. Distance between cheetah and impala is shrinking. Impala knows physics. An object moving in a direction continues to stay in that direction until an outside force acts upon it. As the paw of that cheetah is reaching out, little impala turns. Cheetah goes on. Impala gets away. 
I love to watch that happen. And nothing would make me happier and Jesus happier than seeing your children at the family altar at your house. The devices turned off a lot more, a few more family chores, a little more connecting with some gray heads. Learning how to show honor, disciplining oneself. Spock said, let your kids eat whenever they want to. Listen, friends, I know that's bad advice. Now, babies, yes. But as they get bigger, they need to learn a very important thing to survive in an age where they're being hooked with addictions like pornography and digital gaming. It's called self-control. You know the best place to learn it? Three times a day at the dinner table. Get a good appetite by not eating in between. Listen, nothing would make Jesus happier or me happier than seeing your kids and my kids with me at the tree of life. It's a ton of work. Nobody can step on your heart like kids. Nobody can embarrass you like the kids. You don't give up because love is stronger than that. So this morning, I want you to know something. If you want your kids in heaven, remember what James Standish said. It's the word of God. No experimenting allowed with my kids. And may God help us all to let our children be taught of the Lord so that great can be their peace. May God help us. He has, he is, and he will. And may God forgive us when we've sat at the same altars of the same idols and the same broken fountains drinking like the world's drinking. May we make decisions today that we will go on the basis of inspiration, not information without it. Information where no, information, where no inspiration exists, fine. Let's do our best there. Baby on the back, baby on the face. The Bible doesn't address that. When it comes to all kinds of other things, like by beholding you become changed, it's addressed clearly in many places. If you're not reading these books, friends, what will be unto you and the influence you could have on your grandkids or your kids or our church school or whatever it might be? As Adventists, we didn't used to be so divided. We reunited because the principles of the Bible were further enumerated in these books, and we all believed them. It's time. This church has a great amount of unity here in Bering Springs, this village church. We'll only get more as we come back to where we need to start. So the law and to the testimony, if they don't speak according to this, it's because, help me, there's no light in it. God bless you. Let's stand for our closing hymn. Lord, forgive us when we've left our children unprotected from a world of lions. And give us the sense of the elephants that can surround their young and protect them. Forgive us, Lord, when we've been caught up in some of the same things that are looking to snare them, thinking that somehow they won't do in excess what we've done in moderation. Lord, these things are too great for us. But you've given us inspiration, you've given us the church. You've given us extended families. You've given us couples. I pray especially those that are single, raising the children. Forgive us when we made other priorities, not the proclamation of the three angels' message or the tightening of the team and the deepening of the family bonds spiritually. And I'm asking, Lord, that you'd restore what the locusts have eaten. And now, Lord, may no one leave here hopeless. May we know the promise of Malachi, that you will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. But Lord, 
and the fathers to the children, but I'm praying, Lord, turn us back to the inspiration so we're not drinking from the broken cisterns. And where we've had bad habits, I pray forgive us and reform us. And may we, like Jesus, say, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Now, Lord, we put our lives in your hands. For all the sacrifices that have made this country free on this Memorial Day weekend, we thank you. For the breaking hearts in Uvalde, Texas, we pray. For those struggling for freedom in Ukraine, we pray. I pray help us to do something with ourselves before our liberties are taken away. Lord, reinvigorate us with the great cause of Christ, which needs our young, our middle-aged, and our seniors. In Jesus' name I pray, Lord, but most of all, keep us from being in a place where the monkeys are running the zoo. In Jesus' name, amen.